Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Land Development Conference. The uh, Real Estate Forum has been kind enough to host us once again at one of the conferences. So, we're recording today with a guest by the name of Searing Yankee, who is Head of Real Estate Finance and Development at Dream Unlimited. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam and Aaron, for having me. It's great to see you in person. Definitely, yeah. So Searing and I do know each other outside just uh, the podcast world. So it's nice to have a familiar face on. So I know part of her story, not all of it, but for the number of listeners who don't, maybe we'll do a bit of background on how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Adam, for the question. Uh, I think that some people are fortunate to have a linear path, I would say, on their career. For me, it was a bit of a trajectory and a winding path, I would say. I've been in the industry for 17, almost going to 18 years. Bit of an old lady here in the industry, seen a lot 2008 and continuing to see the changes that we are currently all experiencing as of today. So I came to Canada in 2004 as a political refugee. So for that path to be at this position, focus on real estate, focus on affordable housing, on sustainability, and really being able to redefine and to be part of the how we define what city building is and our communities, I feel every day a privilege and a great sense of gratitude to what this country has given me and what I can contribute. Where did you come from, Siri? I am a Tibetan and uh, I was born in India because my parents had fled Tibet at that time. And when you came, what was the motivation to get into real estate? What was the path to try to build a community as you focus on sustainability and affordability? I mean, that wasn't from day one. What was the path to get to where you are today? My graduate school studies, because I've been very, very fortunate to have great education with the kindness of so many people. And it was focused on, it was master's in finance and international economics. And at that time, as I was finishing my grad school, I had the opportunity to work on foreign direct investment with a focus on real estate. And I felt that it was just a click. Sometimes it's just a click when you feel it's like, oh, this is the right path personally as well as professionally. Because as I was dealing with the macro issues of foreign direct investment in real estate, I realized as to how history social and the individual unit of a society, which is the family unit, gets impacted by economic policies, regulations, and how we build and how we interact and how the spaces interact with our families, how transit gets impacted. And all those just made sense for me as to where there was perfect personal and professional alignment. And I came to Canada and I realized that at that time, real estate was really picking up. And I was like, what a great opportunity to be able to focus on individuals buying homes, delivering homes, and to be part of those decisions when an individual buys their first home and making sure that you provide quality. I read a book where they said, home really develops personhood. So it's like whatever you do, I think that to be part of real estate, whether it's commercial or residential, I think that we are all impacting someone, whether it's a unit holder or a child. We create community. We sometimes lose track of that because you're looking at yields and or just spreadsheets that represent yeah. uh, incomes derived from you know people's living. It's a, it is kind of strange uh, a lot of times, especially in the lending side, when you can boil down real estate to just a handful of numbers. Well, yeah, <laughs> NOI divided by cap rate equals value equals lending value equals debt service coverage. Like it's just you lose track of that. So I I think it's really important. We all do, and obviously it's something that's motivated you throughout your career. So where did you go 
first? Like, how did you say, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to get into this. You didn't just start a dream, I, I no, presume. No, I didn't. Right? So I started at a few other private real estate development firms, and I've really been fortunate that all of them had, of course, market-driven. And dream, even though we have impact, we are market-driven too. And that's what leads to the longevity of any companies. You have to make sure that you're sustainable, sustainable in the most holistic sense, economic as well as in terms of what we are doing with our communities. And I think through that trajectory of first working with real estate, very typical condo developments, et cetera, and worked for two other prior to Dream. And when I came to Dream, I was, you know, I started with as a development accounting manager. And as Dream evolved and branched out and grew, and that's what's really impressive about Michael Cooper, our founder, as well as the structure and the culture that he has created. He has really created an ecosystem where we can come in and bring our best ideas and do our best work. That ecosystem really encourages, I think, more creativity plus also more sharpness and collaboration that leads really to phenomenal projects that we've been so fortunate to be a part of. Well, that's kind of the nice part too, is you can take these creative ideas and implement them at scale. You yes. Know, there's not too many dream projects that come in with middling figures in terms of the scope or size of them. Uh, that's a fair comment, <laughs> I would say. I <laughs> so maybe let's talk about some of the more high-profile projects you have on the go right now. What's occupying most of your time? What's the most interesting pieces that you're working on? So my portfolio overall, it's a great intersection. Maybe I'll speak about that and then I'll transact a little bit more into what keeps me up at night as well as what keeps me busy is, as my title says, it's real estate finance and development. So I oversee really the finance and development of three of the public entities. And I'm part of the executive management team of Dreams Impact Initiatives. And all these three intersect finance, which allows creativity and innovation, development as well as impact. And when I speak about the projects that I'm just going to let you know, whether it's Zibi, it's 34-acre waterfront community, carbon neutral, with decarbonized microgrid system that we developed and have it operated, it straddles both Ottawa and Gatineau. So you can imagine it's two legal systems that we have to address. There's a water river flowing through, and it was an old existing industrial site, and it will be home to 5,000 people, creating around 6,000 jobs. So it is quite phenomenal that you're taking this raw industrial piece of land that has been, I think the waterfall was, Yoshori Falls was almost closed for public use for almost 100 years. We've been able to open it, creating eight acres of public realm and parks. And what I feel extremely proud of is also being able to incorporate indigenous knowledge systems and, and taking it even further where we are empowering and working on the social procurement with DeConti, which is an indigenous-run uh, contracting company that we are working with and they are part of, integral part of our contracting system. So Zibi keeps me preoccupied as we do that. We just launched our first rental project, which will have affordable units and it overlooks the river. So it's just pretty phenomenal. That's, that's Zibi. At Zibi. It is what keeps you up at night and what keeps you busy. It sounds it, Because like it is large and it is phenomenal opportunity. Innovative design too. We're probably trying out a lot of new tricks. Even a lot of new things. Yeah. And the one that I want to share is like the Zibi Community Utility is our own microgrid system. So what does that mean? I don't know what that so means. So what it means is where your utility or your heating and cooling comes from. So we created our own system in partnership with Hydro Ottawa. So we were able to take the cooling from the Ottawa River and use the excess heat from Kruger, which is a toilet paper. So you adjacent, take adjacent to the site, very close to the site. So yeah. we're able to take that excess heat, which they would have 
thrown into Ottawa River, increase the thing. So we're able to reuse that and cool it by Ottawa River. So you're really using the existing environment to create a heating system that will reduce the fees, utility bills for all our residents, as well as with the fossil fuels, I'm sure that we all drove and we know what the prices of gas are. So, Yeah, I mean, carbon <laughs> neutral, that's a, that's a big word that does not get attached to a lot of developments right now. I mean, I vision a future where it does, a lot of aspirational stuff around it, but in terms of actual execution, you know, you only point to a handful of developments across the country that have done so. And especially when you're talking about the scale of this one, it's very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. So we have, dream is we have underdevelopment as well as in the pipeline around 6 billion of new developments that are coming up, which will be net zero. And six, sorry, 6 million? 6 billion. <laughs> sorry, you said 6 million? Yeah. Yeah. Billion. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep portfolio. I mean, that's where you really change the face of a city. That's where you really make a difference. And I know that is a big part of the platform as well. I mean, not just with these higher profile projects, but Buried in that, you know, $6 billion development, there are just, you know, smaller projects, ones that don't have the kind of the press that Zibby is getting. And that's when it seeps down into that level of real estate. That's when you're hopefully going to see a real shift in uh, our industry, which of course is a fairly dirty one. I agree. And I think that that's where for us, we are committed to be net zero by 2035. So across our platform, so by 2035, which is 15 years ahead of uh, SBTI, which is the science-based target initiatives across the globe. Canada saying 2050. So we want to make sure that we are able to achieve that. To your point about real estate and the built environment being dirty is we are responsible for 40% of global emissions, carbon emissions, as well as energy related carbon emissions across the platform. And I think that to your point is we need the speed and scale for us not to be identified as being the problem, but being part of the solution because we know it intimately for us to be part of the solution. And I think for Dream, we're very, very fortunate to have the team, the skill set, the board's commitment, as well as Michael's commitment in terms of really repositioning what that industry should be known for. So, Your organization really is at the forefront of this push. And I mean, inevitably, everybody will follow. Unfortunately, it's just it takes a really long time. And I'm curious, and this is kind of maybe a little bit out of scope of what you do on the finance development side, but do you observe or have you noticed or do you believe that dirtier buildings, let's say buildings that are not necessarily designed with this type of carbon neutrality in mind, whether it's new build or even just existing buildings that are just have been neglected, do they have a lower value today? I think it's an absolutely interesting question because especially in an area like Toronto, you would think that it doesn't matter, like land is so scarce, right? That you would purchase it at any value. But I think that JLL and a few other companies, I think McKinsey also have come out with different reports just talking about as to how there is a cap rate impact because of what the building value would be. Like, you have I to- get flood risk and things like that are also climate related. And so they're a part of sort of the global ESG. I don't know even how to frame it because mm-hmm. ESG is just so this massive thing now. That I make sense because you can tie it to insurance risk and et cetera. But when you're just talking about, you know, it's an extra, I don't know, $100 per output of carbon, right? Does that really come down to the bottom line value? It will, because I think what you've got to bear in mind is carbon tax is coming. Those regulations are going to hit your bottom line pretty quickly and pretty fast. The other thing is not just in terms of a risk-based approach, which is an ESG approach. For us, it's very impact. It's like, what is the positive contribution that we are doing? For example, at Dream Office, we have these wonderful buildings in prime Toronto uh, area, really in, just in terms of vicinity of University Avenue. 
and built in 1900s or older, and they are older buildings and maybe with a lot of GHG. And what we have done is we have really decarbonized. We have been really deliberate in decarbonizing those older buildings. And if the lease rates were at 19 when they were turning over, right now we're getting it in um, high 30s. So it's like 39, 40. So there is that impact. Some of that's got to be market pressure, but that's got to be also just demand of the users, meaning this employees of the tenant that ends up leasing this space. Correct. And they are very particular. They want it to be energy efficient. They want it to be healthy buildings with the air circulation. We have this conversation all the time. It's such a ground up initiative, right? It has to be you and I and Adam wanting the change to occur. And then it pushes up as all this stuff moves. And it's really challenging. Maybe just talk to what it's like in your world. I mean, again, finance, let's not go there because it's, it's a harder <laughs> conversation. But maybe just on the development side where you, you need to be able to motivate the people on the ground, therefore the end users, in order to justify the trickle-up benefit to your investors. How do you do that? I agree with you. It is really a push and pull, right? It's ground up. Residents, tenants would want it. And would they really want it? If it's 2000 or 1500 they're like, that's what I want to pay in monthly rent really don't care about what the other factors are. But I think gradually there is that shift and change that's happening where it's required. The other component to the second, I think the pressure as whether it's the push or the pull is governments, right? Canada has made a commitment just in terms of GHG reduction globally. So there is that drive to making sure that any new developments have to be, you know, you know that Toronto's just in terms of the TSG, just in terms of other building codes, they have... It's TSG, sorry. So it's the Toronto standard, right? For buildings just in terms of there are higher levels of requirements under the building code where it's almost net zero ready that you have to already build to or close to it. And I think that there is those pressures in terms of regulations that are really putting that aspect of that developers have to achieve that. Those who are front runners and pioneers, you would have already have built those expertise. In terms of how we trickle up really into the investors, is a, like as I mentioned, we just had our AGM and really it's about if you have that expertise, if you have the development track record, and you have this group of consultants that are really part of your team, you really do become a partner of choice for governments. We've been very, very fortunate with our partners on Western Lands, where we're building gold lead communities, 2,300 units, which 30% will be affordable for 99 years. Uh, it's in transit-oriented, like five minutes away from distillery, which we're also very fortunate to own. Zibi, the same thing, right? Again, government partnerships and really becoming the partner of choice with governments to really build and shape those and... Keyside, we've been very, very fortunate again to be the winning proponent. It's 12 acres of prime Toronto waterfront that we have the fortunate uh, opportunity to build and transform. And those all trickle to extremely irreplaceable, valuable assets that we'll be owning for a long time. Yeah, this is crown jewel real estate to to put it mildly. And you wouldn't get access to those kinds of sites if you didn't bring the full package in terms of your offering. If it was just a, a pro forma based on maximizing profit, then you probably wouldn't have you know, taken any of those three sites. There is always the economic case as an aspect to this. And we are speaking with somebody involved in energy management on this podcast about what would be the biggest driver to change behavior. And it was government incentive or disincentive. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the fastest one because that's usually blanket applicable to everybody in the marketplace and can be implemented overnight. But with what you're saying now about government partnerships, is that a further incentive? Do you agree that government would be the mode to incentivize and change economic structures uh, your developments to make this viable? I should be careful in saying whether it's just governments. I think it has to be 
the incentivization has to be coming from governments with regulations. However, I think it has to be market-driven too. Like, I don't think that it's just a entity. I think it has to be also in conjunction with the private sector because we understand the supply and market demand. But there are certain aspects as we're dealing with the current interest rate environment and certain impact aspects, whether it's affordability or climate change, there has to be government incentivization on behavioral change, about creating that market, about crowding in private capital, about crowding in private expertise. And the other one that we've been very fortunate is to work with Canada Infrastructure Bank on the decarbonization. I think, Aaron, you asked earlier about existing assets, older existing assets. So the government has $2 billion retrofit initiatives for uh, existing buildings. Where That's on the infrastructure side. Correct. It's so is that hospitals, schools? You have for the public, but also for the private for office buildings, multi-res. It's a $2 billion uh, retrofit initiative for any type of uh, use. So you, if you buy an older stock building that needs investment, capital expenditures for carbon yeah. neutralization, the bank is there for you. Yeah, the, the Canada bank. Infrastructure Bank is there. So what is very, very well structured, I have to say, I think it's very innovative, is they structured your GHG emissions and correlated to the interest rate. So the deeper your carbon emission reduction, the lower your interest rate. And what a great incentive, I thought. It's like, Can't compete with that, Adam. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, see you later, everybody. <laughs> Maybe Adam That's, is structuring one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to that point, of course, CMHC's got good products in the apartment front that incentivize both affordability and uh, energy efficiency, not necessarily the interest rate side, but in the loan proceeds and fees. So there is there is different ways, of course, of structuring incentives, but ultimately they are a big part of the, the picture. Absolutely. And I think, Adam, you've been working very hard on the, the MLI Select program. I think we've been very, very fortunate to be able to collaborate and co-create that program with CMHC. So I think that it's getting a lot of utilization by a lot of people, creating affordable as well as decarbonizing. It is. We've talked about it a bunch on this podcast, but for all of the challenges that government has posed for our community, the commercial real estate community, whether it's on development side or, or what have you, because it, it seems to be a, unfortunately, it seems to be a conversation that comes up time and time again, whether it's new municipal, provincial, or federal, but the CMAC programs, this MLI Select program, and if, if you aren't aware and you're hearing it for the first time, just type in MLI Select and into the Google machine and, and it'll tell you all about it. But Really one of the best that I've seen in my only minimum 12, 13 years of the industry to really help our community finance and then therefore create the motivation to provide energy efficiency buildings or affordable buildings or even accessibility, right? There are these social outcomes that they're promoting through longer amortizations, discounted premiums. I mean, there's lots of incentives and they're, they're really motivating. It's not lipstick, right? It's It's a game changer. It's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. The other area, of course, where you see an incentive from having, you know, this is part of your program is on the investor side. Of course, you are engaged in the public markets. And our understanding is that certain large investment groups won't participate in funds that don't have a program to address a lot of these things you're addressing. Do you feel that you get more investor attention because you've got such a prominent place in terms of being the forefront of energy efficiency, affordability, you know, of social responsibility? I think it's the market is maturing, I have to say. And I think I read that uh, IFC, which is the International Finance Corporation, has said globally the impact investing. So one is ESG. It's a risk-based approach and the ESG in terms of what investors require just in terms of categories. Some of them is ticking a box. Some of them is really it's integrated as to what their investors want. 
ours is really focused on impact investing is like, what is that positive contribution to society as well as the market returns that we're able to do? And that is a maturing industry, I have to say. It is around 2.3 trillion of global AUM, which is around 2% of global AUM. So that is pretty large. And I think that for us, definitely as investors understand what we are doing, I think there's going to be more reception and there's more support, but we have been very, very pleased with what the market is. Of course, there's a lot of education, I would say, but I think that we've been very pleased and we know that this is where the growth is going to be. Decarbonization globally is a 275 trillion market. Do you get frustrated? You know, as <laughs> I was going to ask the exact same question. It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> as a leader in this part of our business, and really, again, you've mentioned you've got your board and Michael's leadership, and you guys really are truly at the forefront of just adopting, absorbing, internalizing this approach to real estate, being impact investing, carbon neutralization, however you want to define it. But there are laggards. And what you're doing, it does, it is more expensive, right? Like you do have to put in more thought. There's, I mean, you talked about, I can't even remember what it is, but what did you call it? The, 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 the heat problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Zibi yeah, community. Yeah. The uh, Zibi. So you, I mean, you're doing all sorts of things that you didn't have to. Right. And burn some oil. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, so you, you're, you're looking to acquire more land and continue to do this, but you've got to pay more. Your, your performers aren't as stretched and you might be losing on bids at times simply because others are just saying, well, I'm just going to build a boring old building, right? How do you work with that? Or do you just kind of say, well, they're going to figure it out eventually or they're going to get forced to? I don't know. Like, choke them out eventually. <laughs> there was two questions in that. I would say it's, I think that on our performer, very, very clearly to both of you is like, we make sure there's rigor and making sure that we make market returns. So that is, we will not compromise. Somehow we will structure it and design it so that we are able to achieve those market returns as well as have impact. So that's definitely there. And that's why we have to really be creative and how we stack different aspects of how we design, build, and finance to make sure that we meet those market returns. So that's there. In terms of, I would say, those who are late adopters, like the partnership on the MLI Select, we're like, this is what we could do. Because just imagine, and Adam, and, and I'm sure you both know, is like to build a new unit today will be close to around 600 to 700,000. And it takes around four to five years. And if DCs go up, that's a different question, et cetera. But it takes for four to five years just to build it, a new affordable house. So when we were thinking, when we put forth that idea to CMHC about MLI Select, we were like, what if we can do it at a shorter time span, time span and with less cost? So right now, if you transact, say just, I'm just throwing out numbers here. Say you are able to build an existing multi-unit property for 350000 per door versus a 600000 that you have to take, which will take four to six years, three hundred fifty, you decarbonize it, say it goes up to maximum of 400 per door, and you get it done within six months. So you've created affordable housing, you've got to decarbonize. But I do feel that you need both the new development as well as this. So for us, it was like a great idea. It works. It'll make market returns too. But then it'll be there for all those who are whether late adopters or laggards to be able to say, huh, it can work and this is how we would want to work. So I think that I do feel there'll be a shift. Maybe I'm a glass full kind of girl, but I do hope that people will realize that along with impact and decarbonization, as you put it, there's also great, great economic value proposition because you'll be owning resilient buildings for the long term. I know that Dream invests overseas as well, likely in markets that maybe are a little more advanced in terms of their approach to this. Any big takeaways from where 
Canada could be in a four or five time horizon for many of the markets you've looked at? I think for us, I would say maybe Europe to be able to look at it. But I do think that we really cannot discount as to the champions here in Canada at home, as well as I do feel that there is alignment with all three levels of government where this is a priority, whether it's affordable housing or dealing with sustainability. So definitely Europe is a market that we do look closely at just in terms of how they're able to position themselves and how they're able to work to make sure that it works for all, all stakeholders, the private, the public, as well as the civil society, I would say. As soon as I asked you the question, I was really hoping you're not going to mention lenders doing green bonds and how maybe uh, <laughs> Aaron and I might be part of the laggards. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> They're coming. They're they are coming. coming. Yeah. yeah. Just figuring out how to make it work. We'll ask our friends to see what they're doing about it. <laughs> you know, an interesting approach to kind of what you just talked about, well, what's going on in Europe? And, and we've had this conversation with others about ESG and what you're talking about, impact investing, where there's a layer of investors in the commercial real estate community in Canada that are global, Dream being one of them, that gets exposure to the global community where it is a major item and where you know, if you want to buy a building in Germany, you've got to have a really buttoned down ESG policy platform. Yes. It's not just a piece of paper that you pull out and say, look, I've got it. Like It's got to be a full-on part of your business. So that's one very small sliver of the investment community in Canada. For the most part, it's private institutions and smaller family-run businesses. I mean, I know this is not your world, but are you concerned that it's going to take a lot longer for them to adopt to this concept of impact investing? Now, they're not building 5,000 units, right? They might be buying 50 but those 50 are equally as important yes. because it's still housing Canadians. There's still community that needs to be focused on. How do we, maybe this may be a esoteric question, I guess. How do we get that group of investors, a very large component of our real estate owners in the country to come on board? I think through education, I think this podcast that you guys are doing, allowing me the platform to speak about what we are doing and how we are really, it's not been very linear. It takes a lot of rigor. And I think that's, such podcasts like this, a great platform, whether it's the conferences, a lot of education, I think that's important to let them understand that it can work and how it's achievable. A lot of time is capital. And the second, I would say expertise. So how we do we make sure that capital and expertise are allowed to flow through down to a smaller developers or smaller owners of different properties? So I think a lot of it's education. The second is making sure that there is access, like I mentioned, whether it's access to capital or access to the expertise and how we can form and do that. The third, I would say, is we know that there's regulations happening. So I think that just naturally there's going to be certain... certain Well, you talked about push and pull earlier. There's a bit of a push too, right? Yeah. So I think it's both. Searing, your dream's obviously at the forefront of of impact investing. But when you started in real estate 17, 8 years ago, that would have been virtually a different universe in terms of the prominence of that. Well, no one ever heard of impact investing. <laughs> yeah, no, or, or any iteration or uh, synonym you can think of for it. So how do you see this evolve at Dream? How do you see it come to be such a, an important part of the culture and the goals of the company? So a Dream has been in business for 25 years and we've always been striving to build better communities. And the last two years, I think for all of us, it has been a moment of real reflection and inflection. And for us, I think it was the initial, the killing of George Floyd that really impacted us to make us pause and and then realize like, what is it that we're doing in the real estate? Because it really intersects with social justice issues. Then we saw the sixth IPCC report, which said that 40% of global emissions come from buildings, which is our industry, which we all love and are part of. 
And that really made us think through, okay, how do we pause with the real estate that we have from Western Canada that Dream owns to Ottawa Gatineau in Europe, as well as everything in GTA as to what we're choosing to do and who we want to be as we move forward. We then retained consultants for six months and we went through creating our impact management system. To your point is there wasn't really any. It's like, what is that system and framework that will help us make those decisions? And following that, we said our three verticals were affordable housing, climate resiliency, and inclusivity. So those three verticals are part of everything that we do. From the time we make our investments and decisions, we have to make sure that we meet the economic returns, but also be able to address to our investment committee what those impact returns are going to be and who they are going to impact. So it's intentionality, measurement, and verification. We don't want any impact washing at all. As a public entity, we want to make sure there's rigor in measurement and verification. So that has really become important to us. And affordable housing and climate change, which is what we spoke out throughout the podcast, but the third vehicle or the third vertical is inclusivity. And how do we make sure that we create a sense of belonging for everyone and there's equal access to opportunity for everyone? So I mentioned earlier about social procurement with DeConti. But the other one is in terms of a sense of belonging for all our residents and tenants. And Michael Cooper has founded the Dream Community Foundation and seeded with $25 million of their own funds to create this foundation that will focus on affordable living, culture and inclusion, creating sense of belonging and really on health and wellness. So it's, it really would be integrated to programming initiatives across our communities. So that way, through the built environment, we create resilient buildings. But through this investment, through Dream Community Foundation, we'll build resilient communities. I love the way that the organization that Dream has kind of wrapped their arms around this. It's almost like you own it. It feels like, no, no, this is ours. Don't do, don't replicate this. But I mean, to your point, it's really important that there are organizations like yours out there walking the walk, talking the talk, showing everybody that you can be done. And let's just reiterate, because I think it's important, still achieving the target yields and the performance that you need to while still doing all of these other things. I think people thought it was impossible and you're proving it's not. It just takes a little bit more elbow grease to get it done. So anyway, we're out of time, unfortunately. Thanks, Searing, for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Great conversation. Looking forward to having you back on just to hearing what's next in the evolution as you guys continue to be the leaders in our industry with this focus. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. And of course, thanks to the Real Estate Forums for hosting us here at the Land and Development Conference. Thanks again. Thank you. Welcome to the after show where we digest the conversation we just have with Searing. You know, I said it to her while she was here, but it is really interesting that Dream seems to be able to weave the ESG concepts into everything that they do and really take it to the next level. And I'm sure there are many, many others that maybe we just haven't been exposed to or haven't necessarily seen yet or heard about, but really does feel like they're the market leaders on being able to deliver yields and yet still achieve some really progressive approaches to carbon neutrality, social outcomes, and just really do it in the right way. I would argue that maybe it's not that you haven't been exposed to them. It's just that maybe they don't exist. I mean, the recurring theme when we speak to people on this topic is it is truly just kind of going top down. And, you know, the biggest players are focusing on that, but it doesn't trickle down much to the mid-market players or the mom and pops. And you've got, through your work, obviously, a lot of exposure to most of the big groups. So I, I would think that you probably are actually seeing 
seeing most of the efforts in that space by the real estate players because it is being undertaken by the most visible groups. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just interesting with Dream. And of course, even when we had the fortune of interviewing Michael Cooper, who is clearly the leader on all this, right? Like he's a very strong figurehead in the Dream organization. And he's he's pushing this. Of course, we've interviewed his daughter multiple times, who has this in the forefront, her sort of investment in prop tech. You, can, uh, you mentioned her name, just say by Google, Courtney Cooper. Oh, did I not? Partners. Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Courtney Cooper. So it is. It's just it's interesting that they've been able to do it, and and it's not surprising because we know in Europe we've said this so many times. Who are whatever it is five ten years ahead of us in this. Everybody in Europe is doing it. Like they're able to embody these types of social outcome requirements and inputs into their decision making, and still make it a yield enhancer. So it's curious, and it's, it, maybe it's this real estate takes time. We're slow. It's a uh, you know, we've talked about demographics. We've got older generations that are at the decision-making table that maybe not willing to adopt. I mean, I don't know whatever it is, but Dream clearly has figured out the formula first. And I have not witnessed that formula being replicated yet, but I'm sure many, many people are out there just finalizing it, right? Like I'm sure it's just, you know, we're going to have this conversation in a year from now and it's like, oh yeah, and here's the nine different organizations we know that are doing it all the right way. Yeah, well, that is the trick, of course, is for a profit-driven organization to address these kinds of things. I mean, obviously, affordable housing, new not-for-profits have been at it for a very long time. But to see large profit-driven institutions take it on and, and make it work is, yeah, a, a sign of great change. And then, of course, you know, energy efficiency, you know, in the scheme of things is relatively new as well on all fronts. So to see companies actually really build it into their, into their culture, into their business model, is a sign of better days ahead for the real estate uh, world. I wish. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> Maybe if you're listening and you are this person or someone that knows this person, but I'd like to know somebody that's sitting on a pile of a fund, whatever you, however you want to call it, and their job is to go and figure out how to invest it into real estate funds, right? Let's say, okay, you've got $500 million, go invest in Canadian real estate funds. And so then you go and you sit with, all of the big ones, the BGOs, the Oxfords, the Cadillac Fairviews, the Dreams, the Fiera real estate, like you can sit with all of them and you hear their pitches about what they're doing and how they do it. And does the Dream ESG social outcome initiative leadership really make you go, okay, well, they're the ones I want to invest my money in? Because isn't that all that really comes down to? Is it because of Dream being the forefront of this, being able to demonstrate and show and prove that they've figured out a way to weave these things into their investment thesis, they, in theory, then attract better capital, more capital, which is the whole purpose in the first place, right? Like, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, if you know the answer, please reach out, send an email, adam.podic at firstnational, aaron.cameron at firstnational.ca. Yeah, we would love to have it on and discuss that for sure. All right. Well, I think that pitch to the uh, listening public is probably where we'll end off. Thanks to everybody for sticking around to the end. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. We'll see everybody in the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.